If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65, where you'll find the text printed in your bulletin, Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. And perhaps you're thinking, John, it's Easter. Why aren't you preaching from the Old Testament? I mean, Jesus is in the New Testament, right? We find the resurrection in all four Gospels. What are you doing? Well, two things. First, you know, our first reading was the story from Luke's Gospel, and I hope to weave that together with this passage. And secondly, and more importantly, I hope that you see from this text the beauty of what God will do as it relates to what he already has done through raising his son Jesus from the dead. Before I read this text, let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and his help. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, for your spirit who speaks through it. Lord, help us to set aside the things that distract us and the cares and the burdens that we bury and lay them at the foot of the cross. And for these next minutes, would we find hope in the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would we find and believe that your word is sweeter than honey and that is more precious than gold or silver. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word, Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall their days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord of hosts. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. On December 7th, 1941, Japanese planes attacked Pearl Harbor, killing 2,403 service members and civilians and wounding 1,178 others. You know much about World War II. You know, this is the major event that precipitated the U.S. entering World War II. In 1994, the U.S. Congress declared December 7th to be National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. And every year on that date, there's a ceremony remembering the lives lost and what happened. And there at the site of the USS Utah, one of the sunken ships, there's a plaque. And it reads like this. 
While we honor those who here gave their last full measure of devotion, all of us hope and pray that the time will come when we no longer need to dedicate memorials to men who died in battle, that we will dedicate memorials to those who live in peace, to all nations, and to all men. The words of that memorial are the cry of each and every one of our hearts. We long for the day when we don't have to have memorials for fallen soldiers. We hope for the day when we don't have to grieve the anniversary of the death of four beloved members of this church. We anticipate the day when we don't have to turn on the news and hear of another school shooting like the one in Nashville two weeks ago. Friends, these longings are good. They're God-given. But this side of eternity, they will not be satisfied. However, as Christians, we know that this life is not all there is. And we know that because of what we celebrate today. As Steve read our first reading, Luke 24, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. Amen? Amen. And because he's alive, we have the promise of what we see in this passage of Isaiah 65, the promise of new heavens and a new earth. But before we examine this passage, I want to address some of you here today, or maybe who are watching online, who might be skeptical about the resurrection. Perhaps for you, you just find it really hard to believe that somebody thousands of years ago, could really come back from the dead. I mean, we don't see that thing happen today, do we? Well, if that's you, I want to say I'm so glad that you're here. I pray that God, through his word and by his spirit, will speak to your heart and will give you faith. I also want to address a couple matters with that. First, the historicity of Jesus' death and burial is one of the most well-documented events of the first century. Some people argue, hey, Jesus didn't really die. He just appeared to be dead. Do you really think that's the case? I mean, remember, the Romans were professional executioners. Do they just mess this one up? And all the historians who recorded these events, they got it wrong and nobody dared to tell them otherwise? Second, it's pretty clear that, disciple, that the disciples claimed that the tomb was empty. And you know, the theory has been floated that, well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. But all the Roman government and the Jewish leaders would have had to do was to say, well, here's the right tomb. Here's his body. Look, he's dead. Sorry. This Jesus movement, you're done. Because here's his body. He didn't really rise from the dead. But that doesn't happen. Third, many argue that the disciples stole Jesus' body. You know, that's what the Roman officials tell the, or the Jewish leaders come and tell the Roman soldiers to do. Hey, if anybody asks you what happened, say the disciples stole his body. And that sounds good until you think about what history tells us that happened to every single one of the disciples. Those 11 men faced intense persecution, and almost all of them were executed for their faith. Now, you could perpetuate a lie for a little while, but if somebody comes to take your life, are you going to keep that lie going? Surely, and I said, no, no, actually, I made it up. Sorry, no, actually, yeah, we stole his body. We thought, we, we thought it'd be cool. No, you don't die for something you know is a lie. Finally, the greatest evidence is that the Bible itself speaks to the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, this is no ordinary book. It is the living word of God. 
And if you're skeptical, I would challenge you to read it. Start in the Gospel of John. If you have questions, I'd love to sit down and talk with you. I have no doubt Jesus is alive. (coughs) Remember our first reading, the angels said to the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Do you believe that? A seminary professor tells a story of a Muslim who became a Christian in Africa. And some of his friends asked him, why have you become a Christian? He answered, well, it's like this. Suppose you were going down the road and suddenly the road forked in two directions and you don't know which way to go. And there at the fork in the road were two men, one dead and one alive. Which one would you ask which way to go? Friends, Jesus is the one who is alive, and we should follow him. And what Isaiah prophesied here in Isaiah 65 is guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. When Christ returns, he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, he will recreate this earth in such a way that heaven will meet earth, and God's people will live with him there forever. In this text, we find three glorious transformations that offer profound hope for us today and forevermore. And after we examine these, I'll offer three brief points of application. The first transformation we find here in Isaiah 65 is that of going from sadness to joy. Look at verse 17. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. We can't miss the fact that God is the focal point of this passage. Who is the I? It's God himself. He is the one who will create a new heaven and a new earth. Our hope is not in some generic future idealism. No, it's found in the sovereign Lord of the universe. This word create here is the same word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God what? created the heavens and the earth. It's a word that's only ever used for God. God alone creates. We can manipulate things, but God creates. In the beginning, God created. And in the end, when Christ returns, he will recreate everything. The final consummation. And when he does, sadness will be transformed to joy. The former things will be remembered no more, God says through the prophet Isaiah. This means that all evils of this world will be gone forever. One commentator describes it this way. All the ways sin has stamped this world with its own deformed image will be wiped away. Not only from reality, but even from memory. They will not ever come to mind. What a beautiful thought. All of the horrific things that happen will not only cease to exist, but won't even come to our mind. How often is it that we wake up in the middle of the night and the horrors of the death of a loved one come racing to our mind and we just can't go back to sleep? Or the thoughts of some sin that you committed way back when when you were a young adult and it just floods your mind and your heart with guilt. And shame, you can't get it out of your mind. 
or thoughts of senseless tragedies destroying our country and our world. The new heavens and the new earth, these thoughts won't ever exist. In the second half of verse 19, it says that our tears will be gone. There's so much sorrow in this world. There's so much grief, and yet one day all of that will be wiped away. Verse 20 reminds us that there'll be no more miscarriages or children dying in infancy. Oh, what a glorious thought. And then it says, For the young men shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Seems a little bit confusing when we first read that, but the point that the God is making is that in eternity, death will be no more. Last week I came across a fascinating ardor article in the Charlotte Observer about the latest prediction of the former Google executive Ray Kurzweil. If you're not familiar with that name, as I was not prior to reading this article, Kurzweil has a history of predicting future technological advancements with stunning accuracy. In fact, 86% of his 140 predictions have been right. So what's his latest claim? That by 2030, humans will achieve immortality. You know, people have long been fascinated with immortality. You know, the fountain of youth. They're somehow trying to live as long as possible. Yet I doubt God is going to allow us to reach that point. Why? One, he's the author of life. And secondly, and I think more importantly, in some ways, we already have reached immortality, right? Well, our bodies will die, our soul will live forever. And one day our bodies will be resurrected and reunited with our soul to live forever. If you're a Christian, this means life forever with Jesus. But if you're not, then this means, as verse 20 says, being accursed. Yet even this gives believers hope. Why? Because it means that no one will ever get away with the atrocities that they commit. You know, at times it's, evil, or it's easy to see evil on TV and the news, and you think, man, there's no justice. How could somebody just get away with that? Here, Isaiah, the Lord remind us that no, there will be judgment for those apart from Christ. Justice will be had. Friends, sorrow will turn to joy. In fact, God says in verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem. Jerusalem there is a symbolic picture of the people of God. It's not just that we're going to rejoice, although we will, and that'll be great, that God himself will rejoice. Now certainly, to a certain degree, he rejoices over us now, but sin mars that a little bit. But when Christ returns, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sin, and God will rejoice over us abundantly. It will be a beautiful sight. The second transformation we see in our text is from curses to blessing. In verses 21 and 22, we find the transformation of the curses brought against the people of God for their failure to keep his covenant. God had promised, I will be your God, you will be my people. He promised them the land and said, live this way. Blessings if you obey, curses if you disobey. And one passage that says about these curses is Deuteronomy 28.30. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, 
but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of how God's people over and over again broke the covenant. They disobeyed God, and God threatened punishment, threatened exile. And one day, these curses came to pass, just as the Lord warned. Yet here in Isaiah 65, we find that they will be reversed and transformed. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. It's the exact opposite of what God said would happen and did happen because of sin. Now once sin is gone, that curse is no more. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will enjoy the work of our hands, the Lord says. I believe this means that we'll have jobs in the recreated world. We're not just going to sit on clouds, strumming harps, singing kumbaya. No, we will work. Remember, work is a good thing. Sin made work hard, but work in and of itself is not bad. In verse 23, we find the transformation of curses, of the curses in Genesis 3. Remember, Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in response, God imposed curses. He didn't curse them. He cursed the ground and he cursed their activities. Genesis 3, 16 to 19 says that childbirth will be painful for mothers. God cursed the ground for work and he says that thorns and thistles will infest the ground. By the sweat of your brow, you'll bring forth the fruit of the ground. The new heavens, the new earth, all of this will be undone. No longer will we labor in vain. The thorns and the thistles will be gone, and so will the pain. You see, God is reversing the curse that Adam and Eve brought on this world. Think about the words of the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. He comes to make his blessings flow. Do you remember what comes next? For as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. This transformation began when Christ burst from the grave and rose triumphant. And it will be finalized when he comes on the clouds and on the white horse. God's in the business of recreating the Garden of Eden. Paradise was lost when Adam sinned, but God is in the business of restoring paradise. Yet it's going to be even greater than what the Garden of Eden was. It will be amazing. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Sadness will be transformed to joy, curses to blessing, and finally hostility to peace. In verse 25, the Lord says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. You know, immediate application of this is that wild animals are no longer going to ravage each other or humans. You won't have to live in fear of lions and tigers and bears, oh my. You won't have to worry about copperheads or black widows. Yet the beauty of that promise goes even deeper than just physical animals. For you see, they're also symbolic of all evil and suffering against the people of God. This includes nations, terrorists, murderers, and the like who would seek to wreak havoc on God's people. The peace longed for on that plaque at Pearl Harbor will be realized in the new heavens and the new earth. More than that, there will be perfect peace between us and God. 
Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In one sense, that peace is already ours. Because of the finished work of Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, then you have been reconciled to God. And yet, one day, it will be infinitely greater because no longer will sin stand in the way between us and God. Sin will be gone forever. Towards the end of verse 25, it says, And dust shall be the serpent's food. You know, the one thing that's not transformed in this passage is God's judgment on sin and suffering and Satan. Satan will face the wrath of God forever and ever and ever. Satan won't have the last say. God will. Our passage ends with the words, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Here God declares his presence. He's saying all of this will take place when I dwell perfectly with my people. All of this other stuff is removed away. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful text. But it's not the last time these words are mentioned in the Bible. They're repeated and expounded upon at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Friends, that's our hope. Evil, sadness, sickness, and death will be transformed into goodness, joy, health, and life. And this is all true because of what we celebrate today. The empty tomb. Jesus is alive. Because of this, we have abundance of hope. Yes, this world is full of sorrow and suffering, disease and death and sadness abound. But one day, all of this will be undone. As J.R. Tolkien says in The Lord of the Rings, everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. What difference does all of this make today or tomorrow once the excitement of Easter is worn off and you go back to work or to school? I want to offer three brief applications. First, embrace God's recreation. God is in the business of making all things new. And that starts with people. Think of the words of our assurance apart in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. That's the most fundamental recreation. It's the recreation of a dead sinner into a living saint. Perhaps you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Instead, you're dead in your sin. Friends, God sent his only begotten son into the world to save sinful people like you and me. The good news of the gospel is that God did for you what you can never do for yourself. You might feel dirty and guilty and ashamed of who you are and what you've done. Perhaps you wonder, could God ever love somebody like me? The answer is yes, because of Christ. 
Because Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins, we can have hope of salvation. If you haven't trusted him, do so now. We're not promised tomorrow. And if you have surrendered to King Jesus, then allow him to keep recreating you. You know, believe it or not, you and I aren't perfect. I know, shock, it's hard to believe, right? There are parts of our lives that we need God to keep recreating to make us more like Christ. What part of your life do you say, God, no, I don't really want you to touch that? Where do you need the Holy Spirit to bring change? Embrace God's recreation. Secondly, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 18, we find the command, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. There's a future component to this. We'll rejoice then in the new heavens when Christ returns, but there's also a present one. Rejoice now. Philippians 4.4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is easier said than done a lot of times, especially when we're going through trials. But the command is still there. And when you know the end of the story, you can rejoice in the midst of it. Think about it like this. Imagine that you've, re- you've recorded a sporting event that you want to go and watch later. And as hard as you tried, you found out the final score. So you know that your team wins. You're watching that game, and even if your team's down by 20 points, how do you feel? You're okay. You can relax. You're not tempted to throw the remote at the TV or turn it off and storm out in anger. No. You know the end. So you can endure the middle. In an infinitely greater way, we know the end of our story. If you are in Christ, victory will be yours. Christ won at that first Easter, and he will win again at the end of the age. So rejoice. No matter what you face this week or this year, you can rejoice. You know, it's easy to rejoice today. It's beautiful. The sun's out. The rain's gone. Yeah, it's cold, but it's Easter. What about the other 364 days? Let's rejoice. Finally, let's labor for Jesus. In light of all that God has done for you and me and a hope that we have the new heavens, the new earth, the appropriate response is for us to work for God and his kingdom. Revelation 7, 9 to 10 describes a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation filling heaven. And God is going to do this great work of bringing people to himself. He doesn't need us, but he has chosen to use us. In what better way to respond to the resurrection than to work for Christ and to proclaim the hope that is ours? Who do you know that needs to hear the good news of Christ? For whom are you praying that God would bring saving faith? There's people all around us that need the hope of Jesus. And friends, we have a great hope. Jesus rose from the dead. He will come back and create the new heavens and the new earth. What a joyous day that will be. And so long for it. Pray for it. And live for it. Not to settle living for the weekend. No, live for the end. Live for when Christ returns and rights every wrong. And do it for God's glory. May our future glory provide us with present hope. And may that radically transform how we live today. Let us pray.